The psalmist is unidentified. We don't know who he is, but the title of the psalm in Psalm 102 is a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto you. The word cry simply means a cry for help. And that's my title this morning, A Cry for Help. This psalm is a psalm where we are looking at the grief of an individual through the lens of the circumstances that have touched his life. He is crying out to God, and he tells us something about his personal crisis, and he's crying for help and restoration, but he also beginning in verse 12, transitions to a cry to God on behalf of Zion. And you'll see that he looks toward the restoration of Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem. So this is an exilic psalm. So this psalm is pointing to the period where Zion was in captivity under the Babylonian Empire, awaiting for the appointed time of God, for His mercy to arise and His mercy to release them, to build thou the walls of Jerusalem, where God would do good in His good pleasure in the building and the reestablishing of the people of Israel in Jerusalem. So we'll look at it through those two lens and note the transition in verse 12. So we'll look at this psalm under three sections. One, His unrestrained cry. Two, His unexplained circumstances. And three, His unshakable confidence. His unshakable confidence. First, his unrestrained cry. The wording in the title is, he's overwhelmed and he's pouring out his soul to God. Overwhelmed means to be completely covered and enveloped. He's not sprinkling, he's not drizzling, he's not trickling out prayer to God. He is pouring it out. He is unrestrained in expressing his deep emotions, his pain, his sorrow, and all that is touching his life. And beloved, in your affliction, God would have you to come and cry unrestrained before his throne. Now the word complaint is not to be taken as a complaint against management, as if you've got some problem with God's rule and government of the universe in your life. It means meditations and thoughts. So he's pouring out his soul, his thoughts, his feelings, his emotions to the only person that really truly cares in a way that nobody else can, right? Yes, we care, and your parents care, and your children care, and we care, but nobody cares. I don't care for you like God does. You can pour out your soul unrestrained before the Lord and tell Him all your thoughts and meditations in the deepest, darkest sorrows. Verse 1 and 2, James Montgomery Boyce points to this as the prologue to the psalm because of the parallelism in the first two verses. Parallelism, you know, just means a statement that's repeated with different word order or synonyms, but it's really the same statement repeated over, time, over and over. Five times he uses parallelism 
in two verses. Verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Which means what? Hear my prayer. Verse 2, Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Which means what? Don't turn your face away from hearing my prayer. That's the third one. Number four, incline thine ear unto me, which means what? Hear my prayer. Number five, when I call, answer me quickly and speedily, which means what? Hear my prayer. The parallelism emphasizes the desperation of the psalmist. It's like a child who's desperate for their parents to hear them and give them what they want. They say, please, 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 Dad. The repetition emphasizes his desperation for God to come and to hear and to restore. The psalmist is overwhelmed like being at the beach where you go into the water and one of those waves hit you and takes you to the bottom and pins you. It pins your face in the sandy bottom and it will not let you up. That's where this psalmist is. It's like Horatio Spafford when he wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, which means what? They, they've enveloped him. He's overwhelmed. He's at the bottom of the ocean and he's pinned and he cannot stand up. So it's in that context of trouble and affliction and being overwhelmed that God would encourage us and this psalmist is going to cry unrestrained. To God. Next, verse 3, he's going to give some of the details of his complaint or his meditations. They're unexplained. In other words, he really can't put his finger on. There's nothing in the psalm that says, well, it's because of your sin or because of some decision you made. It's totally unexplained, his circumstances. And so he, he unloads them to God. Let's look at those in verse 3. For my days which means because, this is why he's desperate, my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned as an hearth. A hearth is that floor that extends out of your fireplace, but in ancient times it's, it's in the fireplace. He, he feels the heat. It means to be feverish or hot. He can feel the distress physically in his bones and it feels as if someone has thrown him on a bonfire and he sees his life ascending out of the fire as smoke, which we know quickly dissipates. He is not only emotionally distressed, he's physically feeling the distress in his body. His bones were actually aching. Verse 4, My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. The word smitten can be translated blight, which is a poison fungus for plants, that when it attacks the plant, the leaves and the plant begin to die. It is very likely he has a disease of some kind. It struck him. He's smitten. Maybe there's somebody here that just learned this week of some debilitating chronic illness that you've been told that there's, there's, no, there's no, nothing we can do. Maybe it's not going to take your life, but it's going to be with you for the rest of your life. That's the context here. His heart is smitten, and he's withered like grass. 
He feels the decay, the parchment of the soul. He feels the emptiness, and he feels like he's withering quickly. And the upshot is he forgets to eat his bread. I don't ever forget to eat my bread. But have you seen occasions, maybe you've experienced times where the grief was so intense, you didn't even think about eating. You didn't even know you were hungry. That's the psalmist in his unexplained circumstances. By reason, verse 5, of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. Because when you don't eat, what happens? You lose weight. And so now you can see the bones start to protrude, maybe the shoulder bones. He's becoming very thin. Have you ever known someone in a crisis of health, and the next time you see them, they're really, really thin? Could be the stress, could be the disease itself, could be they they were so uh, concerned that they stopped eating. They didn't want to eat. That's the psalmist here. The groaning is the grief. That's the voice that's constantly crying out within him and around him, and he's losing weight. Verse 6, he's alone. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch, and I'm as a sparrow upon the housetop. Now, why these three particular birds are used, the pelican is believed to be the the cormorant or the bittern bird, but that particular bird in Zephaniah 2.14 is often seen in waste places where cities were demolished and you find them in those cities after God judged a city. Speaking there of abandonment, he feels abandoned. An owl in the wilderness is a place that is deserted. He feels deserted, abandoned. He feels dejected. He's, frankly, depressed. He's cast down. And then he's like a sparrow, which is just a bird, on the housetop. You see, there are people in the house, which seems to indicate he had people around him, but when they were, he still felt he was all alone. He's like that bird you see on the high wire or the housetop. People are there, people are are giving him company, but he doesn't enjoy the company of people because of his feeling isolated. This crisis has caused him to feel isolated, when likely there were people around him. Verse 8, Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. So now he's got people that are against him, and they are mocking and reproaching and slandering him. A lot of that happening in our culture today. You just give your view on marriage at work or some uh, hot topic that you simply express what you believe in the Bible. All of a sudden, you've got enemies. All of a sudden, your job is threatened. All of a sudden, they're mad against you. and Maybe they've even sworn. To imprecate here means to curse, to maybe to... Uh, to curse not verbally, but to, to want someone to be cursed, so they're going to be against you, maybe to ruin your career. And the word gets out, and you know that no other company wants to hire you, and now you're distressed. You come home, and you can't sleep, and you stop eating. And all of this is producing such great distress. Verse 9, For I have eaten ashes like bread, and mingled my drink with weeping. He's in dust cloth and ashes, and he's weeping. Literally, I think he means he's weeping. That's not figurative. It's so intense that tears are rolling down this man's face. 
verse 10, this is really the main concern of the psalmist. This is where his deepest concern lies. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. I think we call that a body slam, right? Could be that the psalmist was experiencing some great prosperity. Job was going well. Family was going well. Life, friendship was going well. Church was going well. And all of a sudden, he was slammed to the ground. Maybe estranged from family members. Maybe lost his job. And his concern is what? What did I do? Is God against me? Now notice, there's nothing in the psalm that indicates sin. So this statement expresses two things. One, he's aware of the fact that he's a sinner. He's not saying, I can't figure out why God would ever be upset with me because I don't have any sin. No, he's aware of his sin. He understands he's a sinner. So he's not saying, I don't deserve this. I don't know why I'm in this condition. I don't know why God would ever let this happen or do this to me. No, he's not there. But he's also not what? He's not confessing sin, which means he doesn't understand why God is dealing with me in this particular way. That's what he means. In an extreme way. You ever been there? Usually when there's a crisis, the first thing that goes into our head and out of our lips, we think, what what did I do wrong? Why is this happening? Is God against me? Now, of course, if we're like the prodigal and we're feeding swine in the field and we've got no money, and we say, I I don't understand why I'm here. We say, well, yeah, I've I've wasted my life in righteous living. That's why I'm here at this point. But that's not the case here. And that would be a good question for us to ask. But we don't need to go digging earth up and trying to find some reason in our past why God would let this happen. Because frankly, beloved, You're going to find something just this past week. If you really want to find something, if you want to find a sin, you might find one this morning, right? So no. What he's saying is he feels like he's under the divine displeasure. He feels that way. That's his deepest concern. But there's no indication that there's some sin that he hasn't repented of as to why this is happening. But that's his concern, and that should be our concern. should ask that question first. Without digging up, we... We move forward. And then he says this. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. A shadow that declines is a shadow that stretches out. is a shadow that declines because the sun is going down on me. That's what he means. His life feels as if it's hastening to a close at the end of the day. The psalmist is unrestrained in his cry. He unloads his meditations to God and he pours out his soul and he doesn't know. He can't explain with any specificity why this is happening. Which then brings us to the the transition we want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. His unshakable confidence in God. Beloved, whether your affliction is ever this extreme or not, you are going to need unshakable confidence in God to sustain you in your affliction, to stabilize you in the storm and to give you traction in the trouble. 
You must have unshakable confidence in who God is. So notice this wonderful transition. But thou, notwithstanding all of this sorrow, all of this stress, all of this pain, all of this agony, thou is the transition. O Lord, shall endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. The word remembrance means memory or a memorial. And you know when there's a memorial that's put up, a statue like in Washington, D.C., the statue is designed to commemorate the fame and the renown of a person or event. What is the memorial of God? What is His renown and His fame? Well, we read it in Exodus 3.15 when He told Moses. When Moses said, well, who do I tell the people that sent you? You tell the children of Israel, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever and my memorial unto all generations. And what was that memorial? You tell them, I am that I am has sent thee. Theologians call this the aseity of God, which is a Latin word that means this. Whatever God is, He is of Himself, to Himself, and by Himself. And He is counseled by no one, and He needs no one. He's an abundant, overflowing fountain that supplies every single need. That's what you need in your affliction, to know the God who says through the symbolism of the burning bush that the bush did not fuel the fire, It did not sustain the fire because the wood was never consumed, symbolizing the independence of Jehovah God. This is the God that we need to hang on to, that we need to grip tightly through the Word in times of affliction. When your soul is overwhelmed in sorrow, in grief, and as the psalmist says, trouble. So in remembering this God, to give us an unshakable confidence. Let's look at three or four things this morning. First, we look at His eternal rule or His eternal reign. We get this from the word endure. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure. The word endure has two ideas behind it. One is just as it sounds to me, to continue to dwell, to be eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. Amen. But the second idea has to be connected with it, which means to sit on a seat. So God has always existed, and He has forever been sitting on a seat. Psalm 1.1, the word is used. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor, sitteth in the, nor, standeth in the seat of the, nor standeth in the way with sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Sitteth is the word. And there's a seat there. Okay, That's the same Hebrew word. But in Psalm 2 4, it becomes more clear the kind of seat we're talking about. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and shall have them in derision. Or as you just sang earlier, see he sits on what? Yonder throne. Jesus rules the world alone. But thou, O Lord, art enthroned as the monarch, as the eternal king forever. Your memorial to all generations, your name is your sovereign rule and reign 
over every single square inch of your body and over every single detail of every pain and every sorrow that you'll ever have. King Jesus rules over it. And if you don't have that understanding, you nor I will do well in affliction. The one thing that we so often affirm and know, at least in my case, is the one thing that goes right out of the window of my mind when pressure surprises me and trials hit me. I lose sight of the fact what God has said about His name, His memorial, and His rule and reign, His monarchy over my life. To do as He pleases and to do it for my good and for yours. I just heard read this morning in Psalm 3311 where the psalmist there says, The Lord bringeth the devices of the people to naught. He maketh the counsel of the people of, of none effect. First word is nations there, heathen. The second one is the people. Same, same people groups, the nations. He is nullifying it. He is frustrating. He is bringing it to naught. By contrast, the counsel of the Lord shall stand forever. The thoughts of His heart to all generations. That's His memorial to all generations. His counsel, His plan, His rule will stand Not only that generation, but this one today and the coming generation of X, Y, Z and whatever they want to call it. He is going to rule and reign and His plan, His purposes are sure and steadfast. Now if God is frustrating the counsel of the nations and the wicked, tell me why then they seem to be so successful. That's our question, isn't it? I mean, they seem to be doing so well. I don't see anything being thwarted, so it seems. The psalmist uses the first two Hebrew words are the same as the second two. Devices, counsel, is the same as counsel and thoughts. They both mean plans, purposes, plans, purposes. So how is it that God's plan and purpose is standing forever, while at the same time their plans and purposes seem to be standing pretty well? Because God has ordained that their plan only work Because of His ordained purpose. Why are His enemies so successful against Him? Because God has ordained His counsel. His plan includes their plan. And the only reason it finds success is because He has ordained it for a time to do so. Until such time, He will overthrow it to the glory of His name. The root word of the word thoughts in that text is to plate, to weave, or to braid like braided hair. You take strands of hair and you braid them together to make a nice artistic design. God is braiding, He is plaiting, He is weaving all the events that ever take place into a wonderful artistic design called His glory. His glory. And He will use and cause to serve His purpose even the acts of wicked men, like Genesis 50-20, where this same root word is used. As for you, you thought, that's the root word for thought in Psalm 33, you thought, you planned, you were weaving and braiding like hair your evil plans against me. But God meant it, what? Your braiding was His braiding. 
Your plan was His plan, and He suffered it to exist because He was using your evil to braid something that's radically different than what you were braiding. Now, what were they after in their plans? Evil, what is God after? He meant it for good, for good, to save much people alive as it is this day. Beloved, write over your affliction, write it in bold magic marker, for good, for good. You must believe that. Because all things are being made to serve the purpose of God in predestination, which is your good. If you don't believe that, what are you going to do with it? Well, this enemy is just having his way. God doesn't care. God's just aloof. God is somewhere else in the universe. God is not watching. No, beloved, He is. He sees every sparrow when it falls. And not one of them falls to the ground without your Father. And not one lash strikes your soul without your Father. So God is weaving His plan, His purpose together, and the memorial of His name is when we understand He's the monarch that's ruling right now over your distress, over your sorrow, over your crisis, over your estrangement, over your pain. He is a ruler seated on the throne. That is going to give you unshakable confidence because you know it's not His plan to harm you. In love, in love, He's ruling because the monarch sitting on the throne is King Jesus, the one that loves you and gave his life for you. So we must look in our affliction through the lens of what God says about his sovereignty and his purposes and his plans. Although he hates the evil that strikes us, he suffers it because the mosaic that he's creating, the braids that he's putting together, one day will usher forth in a beautiful picture of His grace, and you're going to see it with your own eyes. So rest unshakably, confidently in King Jesus and His rule over your life. Number two, His abundant mercy. This is His memorial. This is His name. God is a God of mercy. He delights to show mercy. This is at the core of His nature. So He says in verse 13, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. Because the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. Mercy. We must remember, God has a set time of mercy. Now the question I ask is, what about prior to that time? That's a future tense statement, isn't it? Now the the writer is going to expand to look at Zion and her captivity. We know the set time was what? Seventy years. God's going to stand up off of His throne with great eagerness and interest, and He is going to release at the 70-year mark Zion to come back and do what? Build the temple. Now the question is, where is His mercy prior to that appointed time? Well, it's the same. He was being merciful to Zion in the captivity. And beloved, here's where we need to understand something about God. Sometimes His mercy comes in a package called severity. Intense and extreme. No matter how intense and extreme your suffering is, like that of the psalmist, God is never stopping being merciful to you. Even there's a point in time when that relief will come. Until that time, He is being merciful. But He's brought His mercy in a package called severity. Like that of Job, James 5.11. 
Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of God in His affliction implied, which is what? The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So all the while, Job is experiencing intense, severe trial. He's mercifully, God is showing him that mercy in a package that was unlike anything that I know of or know anybody that's experienced. The loss of health, the loss of children, the loss of family, the loss of possessions, the loss of companionship with his wife, essentially the loss of everything. God's mercy came to Job in a package that was very severe. And God, for His own holy purposes, does the same today. And He doesn't touch each of us the same way. Right? My trial may be much more severe or less severe than yours. Can we assume then God is more merciful to you and not to me or vice versa? No. So when He arises to show mercy, He's going to relieve that stress, but until then, He is being merciful because He's training us. In my house, there's a basement. On one side, it's livable, meaning there's furniture, etc. On the other side, it's just a storage room. It's just a storage room. We just store stuff there. But because I know nobody likes to go in the basement. Nobody likes to go down there. Sometimes I'll hide stuff down there, like a gift or a present. Nobody's going to go looking for it because nobody wants to go to the basement. Nobody likes a storage room. Some of God's most precious gifts are down in the storage room. And you know what? None of us like to go down there. Because each step on the way to the cellar is a step called suffering. And he keeps his choicest wine, Samuel Rutherford said, in the cellar. And nobody wants to go down there. But only by going down there can you experience the mercy of God through a severe way that's going to bring you great comfort and joy. So what God is doing, He's bringing you down to the basement. Maybe you don't go all the way to the basement. Maybe your trial is the first step or the second step, but He's bringing you down to the choicest of who He is so that you can know Him and know His mercy in a context where you're desperate. Two questions we ask about the timing of this mercy. When which we pointed out the number of years. We know that from Jeremiah, but there's a condition here. When will God arise to show mercy and why? When? Well, he tells us in the next verse. Verse 14. Because your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. That's a picture of the toppled stones of Zion and the rubble. Nebuchadnezzar left it in ruins. It's just rubble. Why would anybody take any pleasure in that? See, when you take pleasure in the city of God, where's your pleasure? It's in the God of the city. God's timing, His season of mercy, His appointed time, is when the people of God take interest in her stones, in her rubble, applied to Jerusalem. Applied to us in the church age, it's in His church because that's where His glory is dwelling. Would that describe you? Is that not one reason for trial? 
that God would increase our desire and interest in Zion and thereby increasing our desire and our interest in his memorial, which is his name. Ezra chapter 1, when Cyrus has been given the world by God himself, he acknowledged God and said, God has uh, charged me. This is a man that doesn't know God, but he says, he's charged me to do what? Build the temple in Jerusalem. So he makes a decree and puts it in writing and says this, Who among you of all the people? Who among you that have all these comforts and conveniences now that you've been 70 years in Babylon, you built a business there, God said work there, support the city and do well while you're there, and they did so, and they've got some roots established, and they've got family, they've got grandchildren, they've got established roots there. Who among you will leave that and travel 500 miles to Jerusalem? I don't know, walk, donkey, horse, carriage, I don't know. Not a car, I can assure you, no planes to get there. A wilderness. What about the valleys and the mountains and the crooked places? Ah, Isaiah 40. Every valley should be exalted. Every mountain made low. Every crooked place straight. And the rough places plain or level. Oh, God will take care of that. Who is there among the people who want to take that trip? Who want to leave Babylon? Who really take pleasure in the toppled stones and the rubble? of Jerusalem. Well, about 50,000, which is a small remnant in Babylon. Verse 5, Ezra 1. Then the chief priests and the Benjamites and the scribes and the leaders of Israel, all that the Lord God, whose spirits He raised up. Now be sure, if God raises a spirit up to do something, you raised yourself up. Those two just come in the Bible together. He raised them up, their spirit, they raised themselves up. What does that mean? It means they were roused and awakened to something. I don't think they were awakened to broken stones and rubble everywhere. They were awakened to the supremacy and the glory of God. And they wanted to go. That's where they wanted to be. Beloved, God arises and has mercy when her, His servants, the servants of Zion, take pleasure. And we see that in the actual restoration of God's mercy, bringing Israel back to Jerusalem. But we see it in the church too, don't we? In 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're called stones. Not stones in ruin, but living stones. Where Peter says there, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming to a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as living stones are what? Being built up. So those whose spirits were raised up went back to build, using the stones to build a physical temple. God has raised up a people to do what? Build as the stones themselves, coming together in Zion, the city of God, and building and offering spiritual sacrifices. Now what did Peter put his finger on that would arouse us and awaken us to such a building project? It's the word precious. He uses it three or four times in his epistle. You're coming to a living stone who is prized or highly valued. Or the question is, is he? 
is the monarch so prized, so valued, so dear to you, so wonderful. You take pleasure in the stones which he loves and he's building and he gave his life for and that he listens to and he hears and he rules over. Oh yes, men reject him, but God's estimation of his son, he is valuable. What's your estimation this morning? How do you feel about King Jesus? I don't know about those stones, you know, we still are a bunch of sinners, but when we look and take pleasure in God, then we're coming to the stone and coming to the place where His glory is made known, which is the building of the New Testament church. So that's the first reason God arises to have mercy. Or when is because people are taking pleasure in what He's doing. And when people are taking pleasure in God's mercy, what's happening? God's mercy is magnified. And that's what God is about. Second reason, verse 16, When the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. So here we have the word building. When God arises to have mercy on Zion, they're going to come back from Babylon, establish Jerusalem, and they're going to build, and God will be seen in His glory. The word appear means visible. He is going to be seen. He's going to make Himself known. All right, when is He going to show mercy? Verse 17, when people become destitute. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. So when the Lord builds up Zion, His glory is going to be seen in a bunch of destitute people. I wonder if our problem, beloved, is we're just not destitute enough. Now it's hard to just produce your own destitution, isn't it? (laughs) I'm just going to be destitute next week. But you see... God has a way, like in this psalmist's life, to bring us down to the cellar where we find His mercy. In a deeper way, He has a way of producing more destitution that's going to bring Him more glory. The word destitution means stripped. See, God's aim is to strip us more of our self-reliance, our pride, our self-centeredness. Our self-love. Can anybody say they don't have any of that? We do. And graciously in His mercy, He's coming to us to strip us more and more of our pride so that His glory would be seen in people who bring the need to God because they're stripped and they don't have anything. They bring that need to God and God's glory is seen and magnified through people who are destitute. And when you're destitute, what do you do? You start praying, right? Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears of the stones and the rubble of Jerusalem, and he just starts crying. He's weeping at the deplorable state of Zion. And then he goes to God and he prays. And he says, Lord, hear the prayer of the saints and all those who delight and desire to fear your name. He just becomes destitute before God and God starts to fill him and lead him. And what happens? People come back to Jerusalem and God is magnified through the building of the temple. 
So, beloved, when God arises to show mercy, when He has His appointed time for lifting the trial and for restoration, His aim is more destitution, more neediness, and more glory for the mercy which is His memorial. That's the capstone of who God is. It's His mercy. It's His mercy. So, we need to have unshakable confidence in God's mercy and know that the aim of that mercy is to fill us, is to satisfy us, it's to strengthen us as we become more and more destitute before the Lord. That's His purpose. That is the when in the timing. Consider uh, Isaiah 30 briefly where uh, it's related again to Israel trusting in Egypt and other resources instead of trusting in God and God gives a judgment concerning them and then God says, uh, therefore the Lord will wait to be gracious to you and He will be exalted to show mercy unto you for the Lord God is a God of judgment. And then it goes on to say in the next verse, when will He show His mercy that He's waiting to show? When will He be gracious that He says, I'm going to wait to show it? He says, when He hears the voice of your cry. Do you know why? Because He says He'll be exalted when He shows mercy for people who are destitute. He's waiting, as it were, for your destitution, for you to start crying out to God. How often do we cry out to God in our need? Or we seek the Egyptians or the counselors or the people of the world to give us the help we need. And God would have us come to Him. And then what would produce that cry? Isaiah 30 in the next verse says, you're going to eat the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. That's basically what the psalmist is saying. When we start drinking the water of affliction and the bread of adversity, we start crying out to God and God is exalted because He brings mercy. He brings help. He brings His sufficiency. The great I Am brings all that He is to the problem of the day. And we get help and He gets glory. Now the why is found in verse 15. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. So God's aim is when He gives this mercy as His appointed time, and He brings mercy, and He appears in His glory, and we get help through crying out in prayer, is that others see that, and they turn to God, and they fear His name. See? When the servants take pleasure in their stones and favor the dust thereof, what happens? So the heathen, the nations, shall fear the name of the Lord. Psalm 67, The Lord be merciful and bless us. Make your face to shine upon us. Why would you pray that? that your saving health may be known among the nations. Let all the nations be what? Glad. What would make them glad? If they knew the mercy of God. So the, the reason for God rising to show mercy is so the heathen would fear the name of the Lord and verse 21, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion, His praise in Jerusalem. God is always after the exaltation of the memorial of His name 
which again, the capstone is His mercy and His grace. He's always after that. So He's always going to come in such a way that He gets all the glory when we're stripped of our pride. That's a painful thing. That's a good thing. And we get all of His help. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Next, and I'll haste along, we see next God's faithfulness. Verse 18, This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For He hath looked down from the height of His sanctuary, from heaven to the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, and then to declare the name of the Lord. Verse 22, When the people are gathered together, and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. The faithfulness. We need confidence in God's faithfulness. You see that first, God is faithful to continue His purpose to the next generation. The people that are created, which means birthed. God is still birthing a people called the new birth today. And those people are doing what? Declaring the name of the Lord in Zion? What are they doing when the people are gathered together and the kingdom to serve the Lord? And, and that's what we're doing. You are that generation with a whole bunch of other people. God, from the writing of this psalm, has been faithful to keep birthing people and bringing them into Zion to declare the sufficiency of His name and to know that memorial, and we're gathered together now for that very thing. Is God not faithful? He's faithful. But He's also faithful in verse 18. He says, This shall be written for the generation to come. So the psalmist now turns and wants his affliction to work for the good of others. This shall be written for the generation to come. And the generation will do what? When their birth, they shall praise the Lord by what's written. And again, here you are reading what was written about the psalmist's life. He had no idea what he was writing. And here you are, I trust, praising the name of God Because you're hearing about God's memorial, His name, and how that name came to help this psalmist and give him unshakable confidence in the deepest of affliction. Beloved, God is faithful to His Word. He's faithful to what He's written. We must stand upon the Word alone in our affliction. There will be many voices crying out to you, many voices telling you to go this way and that way, many voices trying to give you comfort, but that comfort may not be the Lord's comfort. So when we stand upon what's written for generations to come, we find that the people are praising the Lord, declaring the Lord, and what are we declaring? God is our help. He's our sufficiency. He's all. He stripped me bare, but He provided and He satisfied and He brought me everything I need. He delivered me. God is merciful. God is faithful. Do you see what the psalmist is doing? And of course, if the people are boasting in the Lord, that's what the word praise means. If they're boasting in the Lord by what He's written, what's the psalmist doing? He's making his boast in God. Isn't that what his confidence in? Isn't that how he's glorifying God's mercy and His rule and His faithfulness because He's boasting in His confidence in God. And when God is boasted in, or we should say God is going to be glorified, when? When you're boasting in Him. We're going to declare the name of God in Zion and boast in Jerusalem. And there's the connection. 
God is being most glorified when His people are what? Praising or boasting in Him. And boasting is, you know, it's pride and having self-satisfaction in your own accomplishments, your possession, your skills. Well, biblical boasting is pride in being satisfied with all of God's accomplishments, possessions, and skills on your behalf. See, we're boasting in Him and not ourselves. So God is faithful. Next, God is immutable. He doesn't change. We see this in verse 23 as we try to end out this psalm. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. Verse 24, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. He feels like his life is going to be cut short because of the trial. He doesn't know how much longer he has, so he cries out to God, Lord, take me not away. Right in the midst, right in the the, the apex of my life. Maybe he's 30, maybe he's... 35, I don't know. But right in the midst of his days, and then he says this in verse 25, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, decay, but thou shalt endure, last. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue and their seed shall be established before thee. Now how does he know that these sinful children, these sinful Israelites that are in captivity, they're in Babylon, why? Because they've sinned. How can you say they're going to be established? Because God does not change. There was enough this past week to destroy both you and I in hell forever. Forever. If there was one sin, and I'm sure there was a lot more than that this past week, why would God not destroy me? Because of the blood of His Son. See, it's not based on your performance. It's based on the good pleasure of His will. You start basing salvation on your performance, you're in a heap of trouble. They shall change what? The heavens and earth. We go back to Genesis 1. That's our reference point here. They're going to end. They're going to be changed. They will not be annihilated. They'll be changed like a garment, folded up. But God, you don't change. That's the point, right? He's immutable. I am the Lord. That is my name. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. How will you wake up a believer tomorrow? Because God will not change his mind. He's received the blood of Christ on your behalf and He'll never change His mind. You may give Him a hundred reasons tomorrow to change His mind, and I'm sure we will. But He won't change His mind because it's not based on you, beloved. He is the I Am of the Bible. It's wrapped up in His own sovereign will and His good pleasure. And He's determined to have you and to keep you forever. He doesn't change. That gave... The confidence unshakable, uh, the, the psalmist unshakable confidence in his own plight. Whatever's happened, even if it is my sin that I'm in this situation, God has promised me He's being merciful. He's coming to me with mercy. That mercy will be the impetus for repentance, or that mercy will give me confidence to look to God and know He will not forget me. He will not change. He hasn't lost sight of me. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which brings us to the end, briefly. 
God's son. God's son. Our unshakable confidence is in God's son. Because now we end with this messianic psalm where the Hebrew writer quotes this psalm. But in Hebrews, it's not the psalmist talking to God like it is in Psalm 102. It's God talking to His Son. Speaking of His supremacy and His excellency over everything. Because Jesus does sit on that yonder throne. And when he had by himself purged us of our sins, what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of the Father. So, beloved, our confidence, just looking briefly at the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. He's doing that in your trial. He hasn't given the reins to somebody else. The, the devil's not ruling the world. The devil's on God's chain. Jesus is upholding everything by the word of his mouth. Your breath in your nostrils is in his hands. That ought to give us comfort. Hebrews 2, because he was tempted, he is able to succor them also. He's able to bring aid to you that are tempted. He is able to bring aid to you in your trial. He knows he's God's son. Hebrews 4, he knows how to sympathize with your infirmities and your weaknesses. He was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. He understands, he can be touched, he is touched. So come boldly to the throne of grace in your deepest, darkest affliction and cry unrestrained out to God the Father because of God's Son. It's only because of God's Son that you can come before a throne of a monarch and not be destroyed. Hebrews 6, Jesus is the the one that's the forerunner who's entered into the veil within after the order of Melchizedek. He went before you and split the veil. He's in the holies of holies. Hebrews chapter 7, He is there to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews chapter 7, He ever lives. He lives to make intercession for you. He lives for it. Why would He live to make intercession for people like you? He loves you. He loves you. Do you love Him? Maybe that's the question, isn't it? Do I love him? Hebrews chapter 9. He's purged your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 10. After he offered one sacrifice, he sat down on the right hand of God the Father forever. He completed the task. Hebrews chapter 11. All the grace that he was supplying to the Old Testament saints is available to you today. Hebrews chapter 12. He's the author and finisher of your faith. Hebrews chapter 13, He will never leave you nor forsake you. God your Father will never leave nor forsake you that you may boldly say, The Lord is what? My helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Why? Because Jesus is God's Son. And God's Son tasted death on your behalf and was under the divine displeasure, right? He was actually under the divine wrath and He had no sin. He was under it for you. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And now He sits on the throne and He rises up to show you mercy. So call upon Him and rest 
in your unshakable confidence, not in your performance or who you are, but only in the blood of Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, you're an amazing God. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve to know you. We don't deserve your faithfulness. We don't deserve the fact that you don't change. And we don't deserve your son. But amazingly, you have freely, according to your own decisive will and pleasure and nothing else at all, foreseen, known, or done by us, nothing but free and sovereign grace. You have made yourself known and you continue to make yourself known to this generation and the next. So Lord, bless us in our times of trial, whether they're severe or whether they may be light, to have an unshakable confidence in your name, in your mercy, in your rule, in your faithfulness, in your immutability, in your son, and all the other things that your word reveals about you and how your mercy comes to meet our need, to meet our emptiness with your sufficiency. Lord, be that for us in this congregation, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.